Why won't the West intervene in Syria's humanitarian crisis? Are you again going to shrug your shoulders or are you going to listen to the children of Idlib? And are gamers the solution to the army's recruitment problems? They can increase decision-making, they can increase your reaction time. They have all these benefits to just life in general. Hello, this is James Hurst in for Kate Chabot. Close to 500 civilians are now thought to have been killed within the last three months in Syria's final opposition stronghold. The ferocious assault on Idlib appears to have intensified in the last few weeks. Many of those killed and injured are children. This week, the UN's humanitarian chief, Mark Lowcock, challenged the UN Security Council to finally do something. You, in this Security Council, have ignored all the previous pleas you have heard you know what is happening and you have done nothing for 90 days as the carnage continues in front of your eyes. Are you again going to shrug your shoulders or are you going to listen to the children of Idlib and do something about it? And yet the international community continues to sit on its hands, appalled by the tragedy unfolding before it, but seemingly unwilling to do anything about it. Well, Hamish de Breton-Gordon is a former British Army officer who advises Syrian doctors on dealing with chemical attacks. He is on the line now. Uh, You've recently been to Idlib back just a few days ago. Uh, What did you see in your days there? Well, we we were in Idlib in northwest Syria last week uh, with my colleague, Dr David Knott, and running, uh, he was running a hostile environment surgical course, and I was helping with that, and also helping people on the the chemical side, because we've had a chemical attack in the last sort of five weeks, and we're expecting more. But it it is absolutely horrific. Um, One can almost not describe it. We were 20 miles north of Matt, which was the town that was hit, the market town that was hit um, on last week. 40 people dead. We had a number of casualties coming to our hospital, young children, missing limbs, uh, and the stories coming from from others and from the 30 or so doctors from around Idlib is just shocking. Um, Aid, certainly aid, medical aid is pretty much dried up. You know, the Brits, along with the Americans, Germans and others, have, have reduced their aid, and most of our hospitals only have about six weeks left of money left to run. And the real, the real dilemma with Idlib, of course, is we know it's overrun with, with Al-Qaeda, the HTS terrorists. Um, but, uh, and because of that, uh, of course, the, the Russians and the Syrians are attacking it. But there are three million civilians, most of which are internally displaced people and we, who are stopped but, but and we dying. Also, we also hear, I mean, I don't know whether you, what you were able to tell us about the claims that medical facilities have been targeted. Well, that's absolutely right. That is shocking. Um, our, our hospitals, we, we, as is international law, we give the codes, the grids of those hospitals to the UN. The UN then pass them to the other side, in other words, the Syrians and the Russians. And about 24 hours later, we get a precision-guided missile through them. I mean, it happens virtually every time. And sadly, because of the inaction by the international community, attacking hospitals, which absolutely breaks the morale of the people to resist and to do anything, are now commonplace, similar with chemical weapons. We didn't do anything about chemical weapons, and Assad uses them uh, frequently too. And and it it is shocking. Even ambulances are blown off the road as soon as they're they're caught. And I think if we don't do this, 
this sort of uh, attacks on medical staff again it become the norm not only by in in sort of conflicts like this but all over the place and it is our moral our moral compass as mark locock has said is absolutely shattered and it's about time we did something about it so what is it that we should be doing well, it's very clear that Britain and our other allies do not want to get militarily involved, and we accept that. Um, the absolutely bare minimum we can do are really twofold. Firstly, we must keep funding hospitals. We must keep funding Idlib, despite the fact that there are terrorists there. But uh, certainly we can make sure that that gets the right place. And the second thing is collecting evidence. Lots of people say, you know, is that really worth it? We've been screaming at the British government and the UN to at least name and shame those aircraft that are attacking um, hospitals and, and killing so many children. In the vein, people in Lib have the vain hope that at one day the perpetrators of this genocide will reach the International Criminal Court, as did the generals in, in Bosnia 15 years later. And that's how they, they accept that we have been, they've been cast adrift, um, but at least they want to see some sort of justice. Those two small things and, and, and getting the peace press go, peace process going again are absolutely essential. Let's bring in uh, as well our defence analyst Christopher Lee. Christopher, I mean, deadlocked at, at the UN, uh, supposedly because Russia backs Syria's government, but deadlock's been broken before. Why, why is it so deadlocked? Um, deadlocks have been broken before, and one asks cynically to what effect. Um, I mean, and the answer is not very much. Bosnia is a very good example. Well, eventually, the, I call it the West got off its got off its backside and said, "Right, we have to now get in there and do something." And the bombing began. The important thing here is is, is about threefold. Um, first and foremost, we 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 knock the Russians for. Uh, for vetoing, for example. Mm. And yet if it wasn't for the veto on the permanent members of the Security Council, the five permanent members of the Security Council, the Security Council probably would not exist at all. And the veto holds mm. it together. And therefore, at times when it's possible to do something, what is important, and I think the most important thing, which, uh, you know, which we're in close to there with Hamish, the International Criminal Court and the threat of prosecution... Um, and the naming of people who are commanding ought to be a wider campaign. Now, the International Criminal Court should actually have to reset it to actually take on the whole thing with Syria. Um, the Russians don't mind so much because they don't—they just wouldn't turn up. But the Syrians, the Syrians, you, they might. But it, it is only might. But the important thing also is that when Hamish was saying that, you know, like aircraft recognition start identifying the aircraft because the people want to know that something might be done. You're not perhaps going to do anything more than satisfy people and say, look, we're, we're trying to do something eventually. And I'm afraid Syria is an eventually story, but eventually they will perhaps take absolute control and then it but, won't matter. I mean, Hamish to Bretton Gordon eventually, for, for, for the people of Idlib, feels too late, doesn't it? Is there anything diplomatically that can be done to help right now? Well, certainly David Knott and I are, are trying, and we are trying to garner support from, from the Security Council, the Permanent Five, as Christopher's been alluded to, to try and get some of the big movers and shakers in here. But I think, you know, what the really sad thing is, is these three million people who are trapped. At the moment, we have a scorched earth, almost rolling barrage, First World War type, moving up uh, from the southwest across Idlib. And, and really killing everything in sight. And uh, for every 
For every al-Qaeda terrorist killed, there are about 100 or 150 civilians. And if we do nothing, um, that those three million left there, the casualties could run into the hundreds of thousands. And can we really sit back? I mean, it took me three hours to fly back from Syria the other day, you know, closer than most people go on a holiday. Can we really sit back and do nothing? It is about time that we really intensified our efforts and hopefully our new prime minister will see it as a priority and get behind it. Because at the moment, people are just saying, let's let it all get over and sort itself out. And then and then the West's dollars will be used to rebuild Syria. Hamish, There's not really much left. Hamish, the, the Staff College uh, uh, answer to all this is that you must first remove the allies of Syria. That is the only way... Because, I mean, Syria couldn't do this, or well, it can and does by itself, but you have to stand down the allies. That is unlikely to happen. In fact, uh, Iran and, and, and Russia, if you could make it not worth their while, therefore you have to start looking at a much wider hope and a much wider a regional solution. Uh, no cynic would probably find it. Uh, last thought, Hamish uh, Brenton Gordon, if there isn't some kind of change from from the international community how much longer is this going to last well i i think the russians and the syrians thought they'd roll up idlib pretty quickly but they've been fighting very hard since april and not really made a lot of progress um i think this could roll on and actually people in idlib think it could roll on for at least another 12 maybe maybe 18 months and the current metrics that's a heck of a lot of people killed Hey, Mr. Breton Gordon, thanks for your time today. Still ahead, are world champion gamers really the best new recruits for the army? And one week in, how's Boris Johnson doing? And when will he stop inviting comparisons to his wartime hero? I'm not sure that Boris Johnson is, is as much like his hero as he'd like to think. Churchill is a former journalist, as he is. Obviously, he, he'd like to see people making those comparisons, but um, I'm not convinced yet. For the moment, there are two British warships in the Gulf trying to protect British registered shipping from getting caught up in the increasingly tense relationship with Iran. HMS Duncan has joined HMS Montrose, but soon Montrose will leave, halving the UK's ability to respond militarily should Iran try to seize another tanker. This week, Iran released audio of it warning the Royal Navy not to intervene as its forces took control of the Stener Impero. You are required not to interfere in this issue. Don't put your life in danger. The warning given to British forces from Iran in the Strait of Hormuz. So how can this standoff be ended? Joining us now is naval analyst and maritime strategist Professor Eric Grove. Uh, Professor Grove, we've got Iran holding a British tanker, Gibraltar holding a tanker with Iranian oil. Uh, The new Foreign Secretary Dominic Raab ruling out any kind of quid pro quo. So is this going to just drag on? Well, I think it might. Uh, We now have a more 
more capability, given the fact that Duncan has arrived to relieve Montrose. I mean, I think Montrose is due to be relieved eventually by HMS Kent, although she could be sent out to sort of add to the forces. It must be it must be stressed actually that the that the destroyer and, and and the frigate are not the only warships we have in the area. We have four mine countermeasures vessels: Brocklesby, Shoreham, Ledbury, Ledbury, and Blythe. They can be quite well armed with have a 30 a 30 millimeter gun and machine guns and they could be used to help screen screen merchant ships and there's also the rfa cardigan bay a landing ship that could be used with uh, with royal marines perhaps in ribs and so on so so we have a certain amount of capability in the area and as long as we arrange an accompaniment program for red ensign merchant ships things should be okay i don't think the I don't think the Revolutionary Guards want a confrontation. I think if there is a British asset in the area that might shoot back, they will, in fact, withdraw, as they did originally. I so, mean, all, go on, please. All, all the, but all the talk in, in, in the early days of this was uh, maybe a European naval force going to the area. Uh, there seemed, but, but Dominic Robb seems more interested maybe in, in tying up with the Americans. That makes well, it that, more politically difficult, doesn't it, because of the nuclear well, it does, deal? Yes. It does, yes, and in fact, and in fact, it's very interesting. This is where the change of government might be significant. I mean, the old government said, "Let's go in with the French," and the French have got ships in the area. They have a base at Djibouti, just outside the Straits of Hormuz, and and they, and they could do something. And of course, that would have made more sense politically because because we have been aligning with the Europeans as far as the, the nuclear deal is concerned. If we align with the Americans, and it must be said that we all we have a certain amount of alignment in a sense already, in that we are using American surveillance assets and. The the British command is very much integrated with the local American command. I mean, there is a certain amount of quiet cooperation with, with the Americans going on in the background, and it makes the British forces there more efficient. The problem is, and the diplomatic tightrope is, we don't want to align too much with the Americans because of their attitude to the nuclear deal, which set off this thing in the first place. But having a European arrangement in current circumstances is politically pretty obviously difficult. Uh, Christopher, the, I mean, the, when we talk about needing to work in coalitions, a, a lot of our defence views have been predicated on that. And indeed, this week we've had Chairman of the Defence Select Committee, Julian Lewis, saying the size of the Navy is pathetic. Now, that's, that's, that doesn't, doesn't quite tie in with the, the list of assets that Eric Grove was just giving. Uh, well, it, do, it, it does in a way, because what he's talking about is a much broader sense of, uh, of the Navy and how much you've got in the Navy at the moment. I tell you what the biggest problem is uh, when you start putting things together and when Mr. Rob says, OK, well, we, we really want to go with the Americans and then the previous uh, Foreign Secretary said, well, we really want to go with the French, etc. When you go in in glorious coalition to do a job like this, especially at sea, you've got to establish who writes the rules of engagement. And to write the rules of engagement with an American command where at some time you have a British Commodore who was deputy commander of it uh, and used to working with them is easier to accept than with a European command which could actually break away from those rules of engagement. And it's very important because what you've got at the moment, you know, you, you, you've got large patrol boats with a capability, short-range capability. Uh, what happens if it got to, Eric says, well, you know, the, the MCMVs have got a, uh, a gun power. What happens when somebody actually does the firing? At the moment, all we've got is, is you know, a Foxtrot 226, you know, you're standing into danger. Uh, rules of engagement, how do you do it? Eric Grove, how long do you think the Royal Navy is going to have to be and can be engaged in this, briefly? 
I think for quite a long time. And the fact that we're even saying that HMS Kent is going, showing that it will be for some months. And as long as the crisis continues and as long as the standoff, the Gulf is going to become the, the focus of naval concentration, which will mean that we won't have the assets to send to other areas. Kent has been working in the Baltic. If this problem had arisen earlier, we, she, she couldn't have gone to the Baltic. The fleet is now so small, as has been correctly pointed out by my good friend Julian Lewis, that in fact, you know, if we, if we concentrate somewhere, we have, no, we have to rob Peter to pay Paul. And that's, and that's the result of a, of a decade-long, if not more, neglect to the Royal Navy. Professor Eric Grove, thank you very much. It has been a busy first week for Britain's new Prime Minister. Boris Johnson has been visiting each of the UK's four nations, the awesome foursome, as he's put it, though he didn't get the warmest of welcomes everywhere that he went, and in his first appearance in the Commons as Prime Minister, he, prompted from the back benches, spoke of a strong desire to boost spending on the armed forces. But how interested is Mr Johnson in the military? And given his often criticised record as Foreign Secretary, how committed is he to big international problems? I've been speaking to Lucy Fisher, Defence Correspondent at The Times, and I started by asking her whether we'd learned anything about Boris Johnson's commitment to defence from his first week in Number 10. I do think we have learned something. Um, I think he has um, followed through on his initial uh, pledge made during the campaign to create a new veterans office that will span both the cabinet office and the Ministry of Defence. He's spoken um, certainly in his first address as Prime Minister to Tory backbenchers. He mentioned the importance of um, building and selling warships. Clearly, um, he sees um, the Type 26 programme uh, and so far our contracts with Australia and licensing the design to Canada as um, a potential um, Brexit boost industry. There apart, it hasn't been his focus. Obviously, Brexit uh, and getting the UK out of the EU will be his overwhelming policy priority over the next uh, 90 odd days. He's gestured maybe towards increased defence spending. He said he's going to protect veterans from historic investigations and prosecutions. How likely is he to to actually achieve this, though? Because it seems to be a cycle. We hear these warm words and nothing happens. Well, you're absolutely right. Um, I don't think our expectations can be enormously high in the short term because there is such a short time um, for Boris Johnson to fulfil that pledge to take Britain out of the EU by October the 31st. On the funding front, um, in a way, he's got to do something. We know there is a funding black hole of up to £14 billion in the MOD's 10-year equipment plan. On historical allegations, um, I also think that, that there seems to be genuine... Um, interest in sorting this problem out. I think that there is uh, an increasing sense among Conservative MPs that they are receiving a lot of letters, emails, telephone calls from constituents who feel that it is just a matter of unfairness, a very un-British, just not cricket style of play going on here with re-investigating veterans, some of whom are in their 70s. And so I think he will want to get to grips with that. Of course, some of the suggestions that have been um, put about, for example, for a qualified statute of limitations, possibly exempting veterans from a new um, historical investigations unit that's planning to reinvestigate unsolved murders during the Troubles in Northern Ireland, that could see him potentially open up new fronts of trouble um, with various factions in the province. And I think he will want to avoid fighting on that front while Brexit poses such a huge dilemma. If Boris Johnson can get through October the 31st and and actually start working on other things apart from Brexit, 
how important are foreign affairs to Boris Johnson, the man? You know, he's got an international background. He's been foreign secretary. Yes. Well, you might think, um, given that pedigree, they would be slightly more important to him than than actually they are. I think we saw during um, during his time at the helm of the Foreign Office, um, he lacked um, a grip on detail. He made a number of gaffes, um, some which were simply embarrassing, such as um, attempting to uh, recite a colonial-era Kipling poem at a Myanmar temple to the far more egregious error he made over uh, Nazanin Zaghari Ratcliffe, the British-Iranian um, mother who is now stuck in jail for an even longer term after um, Boris Johnson um, misdescribed what she was doing in Iran. Um, I, I think for the time being, um, and even after Brexit, we will see him probably focusing on a domestic um, programme of renewal that could see defence come into it in some ways. I think, you know, there are areas of growth around cyber and space, which are quite exciting and um, potentially um, areas of investment that could be sold to the public in quite a sexy way. But beyond that, um, I, I'm not convinced that Boris Johnson um, is quite as um, interested in foreign affairs as, uh, as his past CV should suggest. Uh, something else that Boris Johnson might be interested in, uh, the way he is seen around the world. Uh, the, the Brexit coordinator in the European Parliament, Giefer Hofstadt, saying this week that Boris Johnson and Donald Trump are perhaps trying to undo the international alliances built by Britain and, and the US after World War II. And then, uh, I think really going for Boris Johnson here, saying it's quite a contrast to Churchill and the others they idolise. That's, that's a real stab at someone who, who does idolise Churchill, isn't it? I'm not sure that Boris Johnson is, is as much like his hero as he'd like to think. Obviously, he wrote the biography uh, mm. of Churchill. Churchill is a former journalist, as he is. Obviously, he, he'd like to see people making those comparisons, but um, I'm not convinced yet. How much do you think it, that, that will have stung him? I think he's got a pretty thick skin by now. Um, I'm not sure that that will have really caused him too much damage. And in fact, when you consider who his base is, you know, his supporters are Brexiteers who already tend to disparage and loathe some of the smugger um, bureaucrats and politicians um, on the continent um, and linked to the EU. So um, I think to be um, to be insulted by someone like Guy Verhofstadt, it will probably um, only help his cause. Lucy Fisher from The Times. Christopher Winston Churchill, internationalist, advocate of free trade, global cooperation, even advocate of a United States of Europe. How similar are he and Boris Johnson? Not at all. The, um, that thing about the United States of Europe, in fact, that was in the Zurich speech by Churchill, uh, where he was seeing that states to come together. He was thinking in terms of uh, this is, this is a, a, a European... Uh, concept of warfare and that was all going to change um, so we shouldn't make that tie that closely to him the, the, the difficulty is is that quite a lot of his own people think that he should be talked of in, uh, 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 as Churchill a, few, a couple of years ago or a few years ago before, um, I was talking to Margaret Thatcher about uh, foreign policy and Prime Minister and she said you know the Prime Minister now does foreign policy. You find that you have to go to all these fora. You go to the meeting of this lot, mm. and United Nations, NATO, Europe, etc., and you become, you become everything behind you, everybody, everything in England seems really sort of small beer, and I think that's what will happen to Boris. If he survives, he'll become a foreign policy nut because it's a nicer place to go than conferences at Blackpool. 
50 years ago, it was Action Man. Now children don't just play with toy soldiers, they direct huge virtual battles, coordinating with others around the world, and it is big business. The video game Fortnite has been a huge success, and the esports industry around it is said to be worth a billion dollars a year. Last weekend, an American teenager was crowned the Fortnite World Champion, winning $3 million. Your Fortnite World Champion, Booga! $3 million richer, the biggest individual prize victory in competitive gaming history. Yeah, $3 million. The mass appeal of these online war games hasn't been lost on those in charge of military recruitment either. But are the skills actually transferable? Jack Ward is a former soldier. He now reviews video games for the Forces TV programme Rated. I've been gaming since I was about 12, maybe. So it's something I've done all my life, really. I think with video games, they can... They can increase decision-making, they can increase your reaction times, and they have all these kind of scientifically proved benefits to just life in general. And yet experts tell us that video game violence isn't making people more violent. Now, you know, there's the difference between the controlled violence of being in the forces, but, but you know, can we have it both ways? I think the, the human brain can differentiate between something virtual and something real. Maybe introducing soldiers to these things in the virtual might help them kind of prepare for the reality later. A lot of the gamers at this <clears throat> championship are still children. I think that raises some questions for people about whether the army should be targeting them. How do you feel about that? I, th- I think targeting sounds like a... It's, it always sounds like a really horrible word, that, doesn't it? But I think the army has always looked towards like 16-year-olds coming into the forces with Harrogate and stuff like that, and some of the best soldiers I've ever met had come from Harrogate. So, no, I don't think it's wrong for the forces to be looking at video gamers to be soldiers, because I think it would be a great thing for a lot of people. Final thought for you, what's the, the the most realistic video game compared to your military experience? Compared to my military experience, work simulator. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, Call, Call of Duty is probably about as close as you're going to get to anything warlike. Jack Ward. Uh, Christopher, the US Army even set up a video game specifically designed to recruiting young people. Uh, How do you feel about the morality of using simulations of war to entice people into the real thing? It's brilliant, isn't it? It really is brilliant because it is... You do two things. One, you sharp your mind up. Second thing, you're doing it with other people quite obviously uh, and often. Uh, Two o'clock in the morning and exchanging... Uh, whatever you're doing, uh, and, and that's good. And, and if I've got but, a platoon, but, but, but it that's what I want. I want people with sharp minds who've done it, and 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 they're cynical about the whole thing. But, but does it not dissociate people from the reality of war? You should have seen the absolute wartime rubbish I used to read when I was a thirteen, fourteen, and fifteen-year-old. Uh, but it didn't turn me into a in, into a, into a mass soldier. I mean, the, the, the British Army, that uh, quite well-publicised and controversial uh, campaign recruitment at the start of the year appealing to snowflakes, that got the lot of the headlines, but binge gamers as well. Uh, it says there's a potential for gamers in the Army, but given how many of them are, 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 are young children, is, is that an ethical position to take? Yeah, because the guys that you're going to line up uh, to come into the Army, 
the chaps and the women. They're not youngsters. They are there at the time, and they will go through all the basic inductions of being service people. And they don't hang around. I mean, the, the idea of gaming, you know, six months later, it's a lousy game. I'm onto a better game six months six months on. And that's what the services are. The, the, the flip side of this, of course, uh, is that actually what has started out as video game technology is, is turning into real-life professional training, isn't it? Flight simulators. Well, yeah. I mean, after all, this is all about truth, isn't it? I mean, the, the truth in the, in, 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 in the services... Uh, stands up to the uh, stands up to the philosophical expression that truth is a, is an expression of reality, and that's what your gamers at thirteen, if they get as far as being good enough, as being good enough to get into the services, they're right up against reality, and that helps. Now your your background is Royal Navy. Did you have toy soldiers, or did you just play with toy boats before you were, when you were a child? Toy sailors. You you played with toy <laughs> sailors, and that set you on. But the, I came from a, a family of sailors, of course, for the senior service. Christopher, as always, it's been great to speak to you. Thanks for joining us this week, and thanks indeed to all this week's guests: Lucy Fisher, Eric Groves, and Hamish De Breton Gordon. Don't forget, you can keep in touch with us on Twitter. We are at BFBS Sitrep. While you're online, you can also sign up for the podcast. Just search for SITREP wherever you download your podcast and there is a whole archive there. If there's an episode that you've missed and you want to check back, then go and look through what we've done in the past. Until next time, thanks for listening. Goodbye. See you next week. On digital radio, FM, and satellite TV in the UK. Online and on air, around the world. This is Forces Radio, BFBS.